1: We're in a race
0: to make value work.
1: Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency based framework for health value, Grace to Value listeners, this is one of the most important and deeply personal episodes that we have had on our show. Today, we're going to be talking about the endeavor of waking up to your unbound, undivided nature and how that can create a profound sense of liberation and enlightenment that can end all psychological suffering. That may sound like spiritual, new agey, hippy-dippy nonsense, but I personally went through a profound awakening a few weeks ago with our guest this week, Dr. Angelo Delulo, and I've invited him on the podcast to provide us with a master class in breaking the illusion that we are separate from life, from ourselves, from everything that is. Given the suffering that is occurring in the healthcare workforce, there is something to be learned about how we can live moment to moment and find resilience through equanimity. I found out about Angelo through Doctor Zubin Demania, otherwise known as Z Dog MD. And recently, we attended a six-day semi-silent meditation retreat in California, and there was other amazing people who were seeking to wake up from this dream of separation. And I can tell you firsthand, after spending six days in deep meditation and self-inquiry, I've been able to realize my true self through this newfound instinctual interconnectedness that is undeniable and it's immediately available to me at all times and this realization of awakening has brought to me a sense of equanimity and awareness that's beyond any description that i can put in words it's allowed me to transcend my own self-imposed suffering which was brought about through my previous identification with ego and false identity structures and thoughts and labels. And it's provided me with a loving awareness that with all that is in this present moment so that I can feel the intimacy of truly being alive and knowing my true nature. So I invited Angelo to discuss this process of awakening, which he also wrote about in his new book. And he talked about it on the ZDogg MD show. And we're going to explore how non-dual awareness can be applied the context of emotional resiliency in the healthcare workforce to overcome burnout and moral injury and for those of you that are out there in the healthcare workforce feeling despair and pain i ask you to listen with an open mind and an open heart this is my expression of love and authenticity to all of my fellow healthcare peeps out there that are trying to find the living truth of who you already are and carry it with you at all times and if this awakening stuff isn't for you that's totally cool However, if you are seeking a better understanding of how you can experience a deeper sense of integrated realization that allows you to overcome an over-identification with ego that creates this sense of separation and isolation and suffering, then this episode is for you. So let's go ahead and hear from Dr. Angelo Delulo as he joins us this week in the Race to Value.
0: Hey, Eric. Man, that was quite an introduction. <laughs>
1: Angelo, I couldn't be more excited to have you here. Welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you on the show, man. Oh, it's, it's good to be here, buddy. Well, Angelo, you are someone that works full-time as a physician, and you're acutely aware of the burnout and stress experienced by those in the healthcare workforce who listen to our show. And in your spare time outside of the practice of medicine, you work with people who are undergoing the process of awakening and deepening realization. And as I understand, you got into this work organically about 15 years ago, after your own awakening and in casual conversations with friends and acquaintances, the this subject of the possibility of living one's life beyond the burden of perceptual filters that would come up on occasion and in helping people investigate their deeper truth through these limited interactions, you eventually became more and more of a dedicated teacher in this area. And over time, I know this led you to writing your new book and facilitating the process of awakening in people who are inclined to take this step in their life. So for our listeners out there who are uninitiated with this recognition of awakening, can you explain what exactly that is and how it relates to something that they already have access to, but they just don't realize it? Sure,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. And I wanted to say that that was a, actually a really good introduction to how this has sort of unfolded in my life. The only correction I would make is the 15-year the thing was um, actually for about 15 years after this major, major shift in experiential moment-to-moment reality for me, I literally didn't talk to anyone about it. I didn't, I didn't have the words for it. It went so deep, so fast for me. Experientially, it was exquisitely clear what had happened. It was exquisitely clear also that this is happening all the time for everyone, whether they realize it or not. But it was also clear that there was nothing in me that wanted to change or didn't feel moved to try to fix anything about reality because it was perfectly fine the way it was. I mean, deeply peaceful uh, and, and people as well. Even though I, on one channel, can feel the suffering along with people, I also knew really it's deeply okay whether or not you're even aware of that whether or not you're even awake awakeness is your moment-to-moment experience and so the instinctually i just didn't really have i didn't feel moved to talk about it at all i just sort of lived my life but there was a lot of work being done internally through that time period working through conditioning and different things that just have to be ultimately untied you know in the human psyche and so forth after about 15 years it did start to come into play as far as I would notice in conversations, I would be talking to someone. And as odd as this sounds, I would just notice they started to wake up and I didn't even realize I was talking about anything special. I didn't feel like I was trying to introduce this topic. I could just feel it happening and people started noticing it sometimes just friends, acquaintances, and they would tell me, you know, Hey, can you write down what you were just saying? Like, can you write that out so I can actually grasp it? This is really profound, but Somehow I can't get my head around it and so forth, you know, and I would say something cryptic, like, yeah, you don't really want to get your head around it. It's it's kind of the opposite of, you know, getting out of your head and whatever, but, but I started writing things down and sending them to, to a group of people on email. And it really just grew and snowballed organically from there over the last, I would say six to seven years, probably. So, uh, what is awakening the great question. You mentioned at the beginning that it's it's really not a sort of new agey or spiritual mumbo jumbo type thing. And and I really like to point that out because I think there is a lot of confusing information out there about spirituality, about awakening, et cetera. And sometimes it helps as a primer to talk about this topic is to just lay out a few points about what it is not. And I think that that's a, often a good starting place. Generally speaking, I feel that it's important to point out that what I'm talking about when I talk about awakening is not a way of thinking. It's not a new paradigm. It's not a way of thinking about and perceiving my life and the world so that I can feel better, so that I can suffer less. The end result is actually an end to suffering after a lot of movements and iterations through the awakening process. But in the initial movement, it's really... Uh, The first movement is one where we actually step back out of conceptualization, out of the sense of the self in thought and the self in the mental paradigm of time, Uh, like a timeline. You're coming from somewhere, you're moving towards something. This is all based on memories and thoughts. And rarely do you actually taste the, the presence of just being right here, right now. You may taste it on occasion, but the identity is very much tied into that timeline, into that thought process, that sense of going somewhere, doing something, making very important choices so that my life goes well and so forth. That way of thinking is perfectly okay. That's the practical way that we um, navigate thought in our inner world on a day-to-day basis. But awakening isn't really about changing or altering that to make it better. It's actually a shift in identity. And anyone who's gone through that knows exactly what that means. It's very hard to talk about, and you actually give a very eloquent description at the beginning of this podcast, and that's awesome. I mean, it's very good, and it's, it's very clear. It's probably about as clear as you can get without actually going through it, and yet, if somebody hears that, has not had the experience, that's a 1 on the scale of 1 to 10, even if you felt moved by it. The experience of going through an awakening, going through that identity shift is a 10. It's It's a huge reorganization of where we find our identity or how we experience identity. Simply put, it's a much more vast experience of identity. Instead of being a certain set of beliefs about myself, who I am, where I came from, and where I'm going, it's this vast space of consciousness of every belief that could ever possibly come or go, and also completely at rest and at peace when no specific beliefs are moving through the mind. So to put it in Zen terminology, it's actually a step backwards into the self with the big S, meaning the unbound self, the deeply intimate self, the self that's always at peace. This is really actually the first movement in this process of realization. And it's a big one. It's a huge shift when it occurs. So just to, to kind of touch back into what you said at the very beginning, that this isn't about foo-foo spirituality. It's not about, uh, you know, paradigms or ways of thinking. When someone goes through this, it is clearly the most important thing that's ever happened to them. And, And anyone who has gone through this will tell you that. And I've gone through it myself many years ago, but I've walked with many people through this process now, many, many people. It's one of those things that even though it's very hard to get your mind around it at first, for some people, some people, they, they really resonate with it right off, but even though it's, Challenging to get your mind around it at first. It really is quite an empirical undertaking because you know firsthand that something changed in such a profound way that there's no denying it. It, it doesn't matter what anyone thinks, you don't need validation for it. It's a completely self validating process. And it's actually a huge relief because, at least for me, and for what I've heard reports of a lot of people saying after they go through this, you didn't realize the mental prison you were really in. Until you find the key, turn the key in the lock and walk out the door somehow, however that happens, and we can get into that. But until you actually walk out that door and empirically experience vastness, infinity, not as a thought, not as a belief, not as a numeric concept, but as a physical reality, not until then will you really fully even believe, believe in awakening. Even if you're you know, digging in and oriented toward it and doing inquiry, there's still a lot of doubt around until that whole doubt mass just incinerates in the, in the amazing transformation that is awakening. So it's a vast, deeply intimate, deeply personal and completely impersonal experience. It's very paradoxical, but anyone who's gone through it, uh, will tell you this is what they what they really were looking for. This is what they really wanted in life, even though they may have been uh, searching for it in surrogates, meaning, all the things that we concern ourselves with money and position and validation and success and security all of these things are fine these are you know uh, very uh, usual pursuits for being a human they have practical value but we didn't realize how much seeking we had tied into those surrogates not realizing that that seeking grew out of a uh, underlying feeling of lack and that we really wanted to address the lack the sense of lack and wonder of wonders, when we find a way to really address it, and this awakening comes upon us, this major shift in uh, experiential insight, wonder of wonders, we see that there is no lack. There never was. There is no scarcity. You inherit the universe. Like it's it's an incredible. It, it's grace. Truly, it's grace.
1: Angelo, that's an amazing response and I connected with every single point having gone through this awakening and a couple of things that stood out, you know, like it becomes the most important thing to you and and you really don't identify with the seeking as much because that creates the suffering and the resistance that ultimately becomes contrary to realizing your true self. And one of the underpinnings of what I discovered through awakening was this powerful, realization that incessant thinking is a disease and how that hurts all of humanity by creating that resistance to one's true nature and which in turn creates the suffering. And so many people just fail to realize this because everyone's suffering from it. And it just seems normal. You simply can't connect higher levels of consciousness if you're always thinking. And the conditioning that comes with thought creates inauthenticity and false identity structures and an overemphasis on the ego as the primacy of self. And in the state of awakening, as you call it, what we're really talking about here is living life in uninterrupted peace, where peace is interwoven into the fabric of all experience. And peace isn't the absence of anger, sadness, or discord. It's just the full acceptance of being with no resistance whatsoever. And once awakening happens, you encounter the origins of psychological suffering as resistance to one's true self. And you realize that the thinking that you have, that you can change or control the external environment is working against you. And in this awakening state, I feel like at least in me, it's letting me realize how to attune to the present moment And just allow that natural peace and equanimity to reveal itself to me. And once that identity shift happens, where you you shift from thoughts to the source of thoughts, I mean, there really is a dramatic transformation that takes place in how you relate to reality. So I wanted to ask you if you could speak to this concept of the disease of the thinking mind. And how does thinking and beliefs about those thoughts contribute to one's sense of identity until an awakening occurs and how does resistance and friction that is derived from the enslavement of the thinking mind manifest in the human suffering by creating delusions and conditioning that's deeply embedded in our psyches and then I guess lastly you know how can awakening help transcend that suffering when you aren't driven by those thoughts and memories and, and fixation on the past and the future
0: I also wanted to reflect on something you just said, whereby for you now, you realized how to just let equanimity come to you, or just recognize it's already here, that peace is already here. This is the huge relief after awakening, and by comparing it to at least... The, the only, the only person I can tell you exactly what they were experiencing when they were mind identified as me. So I'll tell you what it was like for me, but to compare that to what I felt like when I was mind identified, when I lived in this world of thoughts uh, before I was 24 years old and it felt like constant struggle. I felt like I was almost always trying to justify my own case inside my own mind, find the right way to think about things try to preserve some paradigm of who I was in thought and yet thoughts keep changing. So it always feels a little threatened, not really knowing who I am, but I think underlying that just feeling more and more distanced from life, from myself, from my body, from my emotions, from people around me, from my environment, just a sort of pervasive sense of isolation because uh, I spent so much time in that thought world, believing that using thoughts, engaging thoughts constantly grabbing on thoughts pulling pushing believing I thought that was the way out but it was just the way deeper in the jungle of thoughts and and because I had put so much energy there and continued to put so much energy there, I was continually punctuating the sense of isolation that I felt which drove me to to sort of entangle myself further in thoughts and this was extremely uncomfortable for me I think I find that there's a there's a sort of spectrum some people find it incredibly, painful and they have to wake up. Other people, it's it's kind of like a nuisance, or sometimes it's more uncomfortable, other times it's more tolerable. But for me, it was basically constant stress and suffering and anxiety. It just did not feel good at all. Knew there was something wrong, but my error was I thought I was going to fix it by thinking. And that sense of isolation just continued to deepen and I knew it. And I actually read in a in a book about Zen somewhere, like one line just hit me really hard and it said, thinking is the disease of the human mind when i read that something really clicked in me i didn't fully get it i didn't really even know what thought was exactly at that time i just knew there were thoughts and they were uncomfortable but somehow that gave me permission to consider the possibility that there's a different way of existing than what i was doing there's a different way of say deriving a ad- identity or finding peace than to continue to engage thoughts more and more and more, which is what I was doing. That really shifted something. It didn't bring the awakening about immediately, but I don't think it was long after that that the awakening happened. But that was a clue for sure. And something that I had never heard. I had never no one had ever pulled me aside and said, hey, listen, as you get older, your thoughts are going to crowd in more and more. You're going to start feeling more like solidly belief-based being that needs to hold on to its beliefs all the time and arrange its beliefs and struggle with other beliefs. And 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 this is going to be uncomfortable. And that's normal that it's uncomfortable because everyone's uncomfortable and no one talks about this. Just so you know, like no one pulled me aside and told me that I had to figure this out. I think now there's a lot more knowledge about anxiety and and even depression and thought-based disorders like PTSD and OCD. We have a lot more knowledge about them and so forth, but still there's this interesting, almost like a shame built into talking about your inner world, your thoughts. There's a hiding that goes on in that which sort of keeps us feeling even more isolated. This is how I felt. This is where I was. So wonder of wonders after that shift to see that peace is uncaused. I don't have to try to force myself to feel better by thinking more and more and more. I can just relax, totally, like truly relax. And that peace is here. It's in this moment. It is in the sounds. It's in the sensation of being in this body. It's even in the movement of thought as consciousness. And that was the key shift for me. The key insight was to put it in simple terms, although it's not exactly like this, but for this discussion, the shift was from believing I was a thought or a series of thoughts to feeling and experiencing myself as all of consciousness, which makes it possible for us to experience a world at all. It makes it possible for us to experience The story of us, our life, our feeling of I, I am, the purity of being, like all of that is sort of structured in consciousness. Now I am still talking about this first major movement of awakening. So deeper stage realization, there's some subtle shifts that go on even around what I'm saying. And what I'm saying doesn't remain completely accurate, but those are very subtle and later on. But for now, this, this shift into everything is consciousness, everything is I. It feels like a, just a universal sense of being a universal sense of peace. That's at least available. Sure. We get twisted up in our thoughts sometimes, but we realize that's not the answer though. That's not where we're going to find peace because we don't need to find peace. Peace is uncaused. It's already here. And the moment we energetically remember that we drop right in, you know, there's peace, there's equanimity. It's, it's not something we have to cause construct or find it is the nature of being and experiencing that contrast that may be helpful to kind of give you the sense of the difference, at least in my experience of being in this world of thoughts, the jungle of thoughts, the house of mirrors and realizing, oh, that's not where identity actually lies. And it's not necessary to entangle oneself in thoughts all the time and try to solve the problem of being the thinker by thinking more. It just doesn't work. And, and it just gets more and more isolating But of course, the good news is there is a way out of that, that sense of pervasive isolation that many people have. And many people listening to this will resonate with this. Some won't, but many will. I know because every time we have these talks, people come forward saying, oh my God, I know that sense of isolation and it's, it's been haunting me all my life, but I never really talked about it because I didn't really know there was a way out of it. Well, this message is telling you there is a way out of it. And, and really that's the key.
1: Angelo I had one more question just on the attainment of equanimity through non-thinking and and realizing that universal sense of being and and that I guess falls in line with how we define our existence through like the sense of time where you have, the past and all of our memories and thoughts and reflections of the past. And then you have the the thoughts and the stressors about what's going to happen in the future. Can you provide maybe some commentary around the, the past and the future obsession that we have and how that contributes to this disease of the thinking mind? Sure.
0: Equanimity is, I like that you're using that word. It's, if there's one feature of, of awakening, that's the most Satisfying and maybe more the most surprising, it's equanimity. So, with this first big shift, the equanimity is experienced as the equanimity of consciousness itself that any thought of the past, the future, any thought of where I came from, where I'm going, where I want to go, where I'm afraid to go, all of those thoughts, all of those potentialities that could arise in your mind right now, those potential worlds of past and future you realize they're all made of this exact consciousness that I am right now. that could never not be. It, it, it's, as long as there's a sense of I, there's consciousness and, and vice versa. It all sort of coalesces in, in this way where you don't even have to avoid thoughts. Thoughts are fine. They're, they're, there's no identity there. So the movement of thought inside consciousness can also just be enjoyable. It's fine. There's a definite equanimity to that when we stop believing thoughts, we stop identifying with thoughts. And we realize a thought that says I'm a good person, a thought that says I'm a bad person, a thought that says I feel shame, a thought that says I feel exuberance, they're all really, in essence, the same stuff, consciousness. Then we're not hyper fixated on thoughts, we're not hyper vigilant to thoughts. We don't necessarily believe them, which frees up our attention to start to actually see what's right in front of our face and realizing. We don't even really have to live in a world of belief or not belief because life is showing us what is directly in the sense gates right now, the visual experience, sound, sensation, and taste and smell, of course, as well. The more we de-identify from the, those thoughts about time and past and future by realizing that, yeah, those thoughts can be there. I don't need to push on them. I don't believe necessarily or identify or pick or choose in the thought gate or in that space of consciousness, but you start to actually sort of lose interest a little bit in that timeline because you realize, wow, every time I've thought about the past, I've never left the present. Does that make sense? This is one of those things that can be a little tricky to get your mind around, but through a quick empirical exercise, it's very obvious. And that is, if you're sitting in the environment you're in right now, whatever room you're in or wherever you're listening to this, look around, you see what's here feel what's here, feel what the body's feeling, listen to the sounds, that's your environment, that's what's real, yes, that's what's present. Now, imagine anything from the past, five minutes ago, something from your childhood, imagine it, bring that thought into consciousness and then let it subside. Did you ever leave this present moment? Did that past suddenly just appear here and literally replace like the chair you're sitting in and the the lighting in the room and the sounds? Of course not. And yet, when we're really lost in thought, we act as if it has, we feel like it has, we respond to others based on preconceived ideas, based on past beliefs. It gets very heavy when we really hold on to those thoughts and sort of start replacing our immediate experience with these overlays. But here's the thing that already happened many, many years ago. This, this started happening in, in childhood. And by the time we're young adults, we've put contexts and sort of veils over our moment to moment experience at least as far as our identity is concerned. It's very hard for us to just suddenly completely let go of the past and future. It can happen, but it's, it's a very tricky thing to do because the thoughts will usually argue pretty quickly and say, no, no, that, that definitely happened. That past, it, it happened. Well, whether it happened or not is one thing, but it's not happening now, that is clear. So if you could just sort of take inventory in this way and say, how much of my day am I paying attention to the thoughts of the past and future? And how much of the day am I truly immersed in the senses, fully aware of this moment without thinking about it. And usually that kind of gives you the answer that, wow, the spell of time is a very binding spell. It's very hypnotic. And realizing that, especially once this shift has happened, once you had this initial awakening, this initial movement and shift in identity, it's much easier to recognize that and just drop right into this presence, just to feel this this presence, because you find out what presence really is, is peace and it's equanimity and it's intimate. It sort of lacks that, that sense of isolation that thoughts really start to, to get drenched with when we live in that timeline in our mind. It's not here, there's not a sense of trying to get anywhere or to complete ourselves or to justify anything. It's just a feeling of aliveness, a simple, innocent, wonderful feeling of aliveness.
1: Oh, well, Angela, I wanted to stop you there because the sense of aliveness, and I know a lot of people are thinking like this sounds like some type of exalted state. And I know some of our listeners, like they might get tripped up if they label this as some kind of spiritual enlightenment. And I know you've been clear that it's not that. This is just you experiencing this natural state of fluidity and unbound intimacy and freedom that is your birthright. And I wanted to comment on that. And then as far as experiencing how unfiltered reality really is and creating that natural sense of equanimity and non-resistance, I think it's important for a lot of us to realize that anyone can really wake up. I mean, we're talking about… One's true nature here, you know, let's call it natural reality, but it's indivisible. What we're really talking about also is like where the identity becomes disentangled from the thought obsession of the default mode network of the brain. And a person can experience the natural world of this unbound clarity and peace and interconnectedness and freedom that you're talking about. And at the same time, that sense of isolation and feeling of needing something and defending ourselves that's diminished when you're awake and experiencing this present moment. And even though I know this, this is very non-conceptual for a lot of people until you experience it. Well, it strikes me so remarkably about your experiences and teaching is that you have found out, you've, you've found out over time that anyone can really wake up if they want to, no matter how enlightened someone seems, they don't really have anything that, you don't have. And I wanted to explore that with you a little further. Can you describe the the paradox of how letting go of what we think we want allows us to have access to what we really want? And how does this state of being become readily accessible to those who want it and provide themselves with the permission to be naturally human in the process?
0: Sure. To start uh, with the beginning of what you said about exalted state. Yeah, it's, it's actually not a state. That's the interesting thing about it. There, there are paradoxes galore in this process. And the more you wake up, the more clarified experience gets, the more paradoxical it gets, but the more you just love paradox. It's just wonderful. It's not an exalted state because it's actually no state at all. And it is true that through description, what I was doing there was just kind of like leading someone who might be feeling into it, into an experiential insight. It Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But I do caution people, don't turn it into something that you seek mentally, right? Of course, that's not the point. It's not like, oh, you're going to find this place that is always peaceful, always happy, always... The way the mind thinks about that is just more seeking. It's actually coming to a completely natural place and, and knowing that naturalness as moment to moment reality, I should mention that it, it doesn't mean you never feel pain. Uh, suffering can end, but physical pain, the body's still going to feel it. You're going to still react to pain and it's okay. The, the, the thing is though, you don't carry it into the next moment. It's, it's there and it's gone um, just like everything. And so it doesn't lead to this massive suffering, avoidance, et cetera. It's not an exalted state and it's not actually a state. And one way of speaking, you could say that the mind has states the, the thought world has states Like I'm like this, and then I'm like that. And then I was happy. Then I was sad when I work with people directly. And sometimes they'll speak that way. Like, okay, two months ago, this was happening. And one week ago, this was happening. And I'll tell them I can address that. But to be honest, I only really know what's here right now. And so I always address what's here right now. And it always seems to work. And so ultimately I'm always one way or another, just bringing people back to, to this present moment, to the sensations and experience of just being alive right now. So as far as uh, what you asked about, can anyone wake up? If we speak about this philosophically, it could be argued that, of course, everyone in the world isn't just going to wake up or everyone that hears this is not going to just wake up. But I can tell you through my experience and through the this more importantly through this insight is that if you're listening to this and you feel inclined to dig in, to find the root of suffering, to get under this false identity that has been constructed in thought, not even by your own doing, you can wake up. You can, you can, you can find an end to your suffering. I know it. I feel it. I see it. And I watch it happen again and again and again. Now built into this message is, is the truth that there's going to be a handful of people who are going to listen to the first four minutes of what we said at the beginning of this and just go, this is nonsense. That is just going to happen. It's, it's just the way it is. This topic, one of the paradoxes, this topic is polarizing. Some people just find it completely, Not complete nonsense, non scientific, too foo foo, not interested, etc. Some people find it triggering in a different way, like it's anti religious or something. Um, And that's just how it's going to be. It doesn't even mean those people can't wake up. It just means, well, they're probably not going to work at it right now, and that's fine. But if you're listening to this message and you resonate with what I've been talking about with living in this world of thought and isolation and suffering, Um, Of course, it's available to you because it is your true nature. You're sitting in it right now. You're experiencing nothing but your true nature right now. It's here for you. And the key is to investigate the nature of your own identity of what you take yourself to be. And that gets into some techniques and so forth. But that is probably the most important message I ever want to get across in these talks in my videos and my book, my book. I say it at the very beginning. I say, you can wake up from the dream of separation anyone who's listened to this far in this podcast, it's available to you. (laughs) If you're interested enough to, to feel into what we're talking about, it is possible in your life. And I also want to say this because knowing the way our minds function, the mind will often start to negotiate and say, well, you know, if I, if I pursue this, you know, do I have to put everything else on the back burner? Like, do I have to ignore my family? Do I have to join a monastery? Do I have to quit my job? Turns out you don't have to do any of those things. I know deeply realized liberated people who work in business, work in medicine, who are artists, like literally every profession, every age, every nationality and both genders, all genders, any gender. Any anyone can wake up. It's it's your it's your true nature. So young, old, really it's kind of an equal opportunity possibility in my experience.
1: Well, Angel, I'd love to apply this awakening in the end of self-imposed suffering through equanimity with the healthcare workforce and at the forefront of national discussions in healthcare, the psychological impact of COVID-19, it's just had a seemingly irreparable impact on the healthcare workforce. It's on the top of everyone's priority list right now. And of particular concern with the pandemic is that we were already having a strained workforce and now you have all of this that we were we're working through as an industry and as a country and there was a report that McKinsey came out with recently and they said 22% of direct care nurses indicated that they may leave their current positions in the next year and the lack of staffing and support has been noted is having a catastrophic impact on nursing morale. And it's led to uh, nurse burnout and a decision that many may have to just leave the bedside altogether. And on the nursing front, you know, I've heard things like nurses say that working during the pandemic is like psychological warfare because of their mental well being has de- deteriorated and they feel like they have no support from their current employer. And there was a recent survey that I saw from the Kaiser Family Foundation, and they said 62% of healthcare workers reported. That their mental health was negatively impacted by COVID 19. And more concerning, 55% feel burned out every single day when they go to work. And invariably, that has an impact on patient outcomes. And the majority of studies out there are showing that this issue with poor well being, of moderated to high levels of burnout, there, there really are some adverse impacts to patient safety in medical errors. And This psychological impact also includes doctors. There was a national study recently that said doctors are twice as more likely to take their own lives as the general population, and roughly 15% of physicians struggle with depression, and 20% report having suicidal thoughts, and it's been projected that burnout – is affecting over half of the physicians in practice. And a recent Harvard report even called uh, physician burnout a public health crisis that urgently demands action. And and some physicians are even going as far as to say, let's not call this burnout. That's insulting. It's insufficient to the pain that I feel when the system prevents us doctors from doing what's right and um, forcing us to inflict harm on patients where this is really moral injury. So Angela, I wanted to ask you about this as both an awake, person, but also as a physician, I'm really interested to kind of hear your views on this, but how can awakening help those in the healthcare field deal with burnout and moral injury? Is there a way somehow that a doctor or a nurse can reconcile an awakened state with the pain they feel that the system radically undermines their ability to provide patient care in the most optimal way possible?
0: Great question. It's a bit tricky to talk about this because I don't want to give the impression that I have a belief that because you're in healthcare or because you're in any industry or any group of people, et cetera, that that I think you should do this for the good of your profession or your family or yourself. You should only do it really if it feels deeply authentic to you as an individual. And that's really got to be the overarching message or it can become preachy real fast. And it's not preachy because this isn't necessarily for anyone. It's not, it's not necessarily for everyone, but if you really feel moved to investigate in this way, I highly recommend it. With that said, I know many people who are waking up and have woken up in the healthcare field and what I see change in them as individuals is they have a dramatically reduced stress response to their environment, to any environment really. And they find themselves enjoying it much more. The more this this process clarifies, the more enjoyable it it really gets to where even what used to be a, a, a very stressful environment becomes surprisingly equanimous, like enjoyable. There's a saying I like a Hindu friend from years and years ago quoted this uh, to me. And he said, a green forest is made up of individual green trees. Now I can't make the forest green. I can't, I can't tell everyone in the world they need to wake up, but I can say, if you're one of those trees that's suffering, (laughs) you can wake up, you can become a green tree and it does affect the trees around you. Of course it does. And groups of people waking up more and more, I think it's going to, it's literally going to affect everything in the world. I really do actually think awakening is becoming it's starting to become mainstream. You can find deeply realized people with very, very good pointing on the internet now, whereas 30, 40 years ago and and beyond, it would have been very difficult to find someone who could really show you how to do this. So I- anyone who's listening to this, which probably the vast majority are in healthcare. Like I said before, if you're interested in this and the, the burnout, the frustration of, of your work, like I get all that. I totally get that. Do your diligence to to do self-care with that in whatever way you need to for the time being. But understand if, if addressing this part of your life feels relevant to you, that suffering related to the burnout, the frustration, the stress, it will decrease over time, but it's not like you can kind of try to use awakening to do that because I think you'll get in your head about it probably. It really has to be an authentic movement in you. And then the effect I think will definitely benefit yourself, those around you, your coworkers in the long run. And and it may take a few years before, before these shifts really start happening, but it's the most important thing you can do for yourself and for your career and your environment. So that's basically the way I see it. And my own experience, I find work deeply enjoyable. I, I enjoy the people I'm around. I enjoy the environment. I can feel the stress people feel around me for sure. It, it sort of sublimates a little bit, I guess. It, it just, it feels like everything's really deeply okay, to be honest, e- even when there is stress, when there's you know frustration and things like that. And those things tend to sort of sublimate into a, a kind of peace. I think that's my own personal experience. And it's been more and more over the years. Um, I went through medical training starting in 2002 and the awakening was in 1997. So I was five years in, but over the years through medical training, through two residencies, and now working for nearly 10 years, it's just gotten more and more peaceful, more and more simple, more and more just in the moment, like not referencing thoughts and stressful worries and things like that, and just really enjoying what's right in front of you uh, in a very simple, direct way, including you know your coworkers including the patients including the science of medicine and 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 the the problem solving and all of that comes with it so really i can just speak from my own personal experience it it becomes deeply enjoyable even in stressful situations and of course we've all experienced stressful situations over the last you know year and a half
1: well angela this reminds me of something you you mentioned in your book about how stressful environments and challenging interpersonal situations, like what doctors and nurses deal with on a daily basis, those types of experiences really add the necessary textures to bring out deeply buried resistance patterns that can be hard to see in a life that is dedicated to quiet contemplation. And certainly seeing, you know, bureaucratic mismanagement that might compromise patient care delivery or just the routine experience of dealing with patient suffering and death on a daily basis, a lot of different things may contribute to that deeply rooted moral injury that a lot of these uh, physicians are reporting. But this reminds me of something that Eckhart Tolle talked about in his book about the pain body and that old emotional pain that you carry around inside of you as a person that creates emotions, that old ultimately control your thinking and identifying those negative feelings when they spring up allows you to keep them from warping response to everyday emotional triggers. And at the retreat earlier this month, you used the term shadow work to address the emotional pain bodies of moral injury. And that's the yucky side of awakening, if you will. But this shadow work, as I understand, and I've I've done some of that in my own process, but it's this path of metabolizing a lot of the unprocessed pain or or grief that that, that you have. And this unprocessed pain manifests as the shadow because it's repressed energy that just becomes stuck and it, it becomes concrete in your psyche and it informs patterns where the wound is. And the shadow is the dark side of our personality because it consists chiefly of primitive and negative human emotions and impulses like rage and envy and selfishness and desire and seeking power and all of that stuff. So in an unawakened state, it seems like whatever we perceive as inferior, evil, or unacceptable becomes part of the shadow and these unexamined or disowned parts of our personality, they really do control us until we dispel them. And it doesn't mean like repressing it, or it just means the entire dissolution of the pain body through loving awareness, knowing, compassion, that radical intimacy, and that sublime experience that you talked about in the awakened state. So I wanted to ask you if you can describe for our listeners, this concept of shadow work and how it can be applied to the awakening process. And for those healthcare professionals out there listening, how can they uncover their own resistance through the pain bodies that are imposed upon them through the rigors of the healthcare profession and working in a broken system, potentially, how can they work to dispel this pain and suffering and then find the resilience that they need to do their jobs?
0: Oh, that's a great question. Just to frame it a bit, the shadow work that I talk about and what Eckhart Tolle talks about being the pain body, while it clearly comes into play in groups of people who who haven't gone through an initial shift in identity it's almost wholly unconscious much of the time it's this thing that we're sometimes aghast at what groups of people can do the amount of violence that can come forth from in families sometimes in in societies and entire countries sometimes genocides and these terrible things that we all wish wouldn't happen and and yet we we look and go this is groups of people doing it though how does this happen this is what Eckhart Tolle is talking about when he says This is the pain body going from dormant to active when the conditions are right in certain groups of people in certain circumstances, especially when there's a lot of stress, fear, Etc. So th- that shadow is there and it's doing a lot, actually. A lot of the time it's kind of running the show. Sometimes it's, it's waiting for its opportunity. You could say, now I'm kind of embodying it in a way that it's, it's not such a personal thing, but it, it's there. And so what happens is after this shift in identity, I like how you said the, the sort of yucky side, and that's a really good word for it, because it is true that after this initial shift, which really is what I focus people on at first to try to think about and understand all of the later stages of realization too much ahead of time. You can actually, without realizing it, sort of use that knowledge and obsession about reading about this stuff and so forth to avoid that first shift. So I really try to point people to that first shift, letting them know that they're going to do some shadow work afterwards, that things will get uncomfortable. They'll get uncomfortable in a way that you're not used to, and yet you will have much more capacity to work with that discomfort with the repressed emotions. And so it's part of the process. It's lawful. It's just how this goes and how this has to go and everyone goes through it. So the the, the beauty of it though, is once you've had this shift where instead of seeing yourself as this small collection of thoughts and beliefs, and just experiencing yourself as the whole of consciousness, you now have access to all aspects of consciousness, one way or another. Sometimes it's by choice through inquiry. Sometimes it literally comes upon you and you're like, wow, where did this come from? There was so much peace and equanimity. And all of a sudden I feel deep, deep sadness that I haven't felt in years or maybe ever, or suddenly I feel anger and I don't know where it's coming from. So this is shadow work. I mean, this, this is when the identity has sort of dissolved into a much more vast space of consciousness. And now we have much more access to like the the physical body, the the energy centers of the body. One way of describing what emotion means is energy and motion. It's energetic experiences in the body, literally. And so we start to come in direct contact with these more deep-seated fears, fear of abandonment, these very deeply rooted things in, in all humans that we were, without realizing it, using mind identification to totally avoid. But now we can't avoid it anymore. And this is an act of compassion, even though it's sometimes quite uncomfortable. The good news is there are a lot of tools to work with this stuff. Some of them are simple and the usual things people would think of, like therapies, you know, can be helpful, trauma therapy, couples therapy, whatever kind of comes up in the practical sense. But specific to the awakening and realization process, there are many ways to investigate and metabolize and incorporate all of these sort of energies that got pushed down, uh, avoided. Basically, it comes down to resistance. If I could describe what it is that causes repression, that keeps this pain body alive, it's a sort of resistance slash avoidance that because of the complexity of thought, it makes it possible to do that Uh, after we've had that shift, it's much more difficult to do it. You can do it, but it the cost becomes higher and higher actually as realization clarifies. So you, you're really much more compelled now to to feel what needs to be felt, to experience what needs to be experienced and to look at where am I resisting? Where am I resisting this? The beauty of this is that when we engage shadow work this way or we engage the emotion body this way or even the pain body, it starts to mutate. We start to see things quite differently that anger is actually an emotion that makes sense. It's our fight or flight response. It is deeply intelligent for self-protection in the physical world, in in actual life. Now, interestingly, when it gets repressed and we spend our time in thought, because it's been repressed and we fear it, we actually fear it, it starts to come out in uh, ways that are maybe unhealthy or unconscious. And so we realize that repressing emotions is sort of what turns them into demons, turns them into this... Shadow this this uh, dark entity or dark force, and that to willingly go into the shadow to to actually engage that stuff and feel it, let it let the body actually experience. It's okay to feel anger. You have to understand this doesn't mean act on the anger. It doesn't mean act out and lash out. It means to feel it. Shame, guilt, these things that stir around in us that we do everything we can to avoid in thoughts, but then they come out in unconscious ways. Well, now we have the opportunity to directly come in contact with them. And the more we come in contact with them, the more the energy of, of the the feelings, the emotions just integrates. And at some point the, the emotion body actually becomes quite calm and that's a different order of equanimity. That's a much more deep, peaceful, still neutral equanimity. Uh, it's, it is quite enjoyable. So that takes some shadow work to get to that kind of equanimity. It takes at least a few years usually after awakening, but it's important and it really has to, has to happen. So. The first chapter in my book is kind of a, I think I called it a word of caution that, you know, this process is not all bunnies and birdies and light and enjoyment. That, the, that first shift is is tremendous. It's amazing. But after that, there really is some some work to do. You're going to feel things that you don't want to feel. It's just going to happen. That's And that's because of the resistance. It's what you take yourself to be. And ultimately what we find out is that the more subtle aspect of what identity is, is actually a kind of resistance. And as that falls away, then things get really interesting when we start to experience non-duality, which I don't know how much you want to go into that, but that's a whole different kind of and a dimension of awakening that will come once we've done a lot of this work with the shadow and equanimity.
1: As you were talking, I was also thinking about how... awakened state you reach that sense of equanimity you're not seeking as much as you were before and you're not identifying with the thinking that i must get the the next new thing or the promotion or the job but i wanted to like kind of wrap that into the healthcare setting and basically ask you like this awakening that happens like how do you prevent from becoming like the big lebowski or something like you know let's say i'm a doctor you know or a nurse and i've transcended the inherent suffering that's imposed in my life and my thoughts and even my own profession. I've reached this sense of equanimity. I'm no longer obsessively consumed by anxiety or stress. I'm I'm living in authenticity and I reclaim the beauty of each moment. I'm deeply authentic and, you know, and reclaiming my deepest peace. I'm guarding my energy. I'm not wasting it trying to convince others through actions and words and social media posts about how, perfectly altruistic I am and how everything around me is flawed. And I'm not concerned about stuff. I'm not seeking. I'm detached from maybe some of the the triggers that I had in the practice of, of healthcare that would normally create anxiety and suffering. So I wanted to explore this awakened persona in the clinical environment, and how the disentanglement from false identity drives with this sense of doership to make things better. I mean, can you discuss how our healthcare listeners out there, how can they reconcile the authenticity of being as we are by collapsing everything into the singularity of now and not wishing reality to be any different than it already is with the recognition that things actually could be better? In essence, I guess what I want to ask you is, you know, the death to one who cares, which is, or non-doership, where there's no agent working against the outside world, how do you balance that with the need for physician leaders and nurse leaders to really take the helm right now in the industry and right the wrongs of a systemically broken system? I mean, can you be both awakened and also a a crusader for value-based care at the same time?
0: Yeah, for sure. There may be a couple of ways to answer this, but one way I I can tell you is just from experience. As I mentioned, I know people who are liberated, so they, they don't have a sense of a separate doer at all, no sense of separation at all. Actually, uh, that are high functioning people in in the way you're speaking. They, you know, have positions where they uh, work in business, people who work in the healthcare setting, people who are in leadership, even hospital administration leadership that function perfectly well. What it turns out is, to put it simply, there's a sort of arrogance of of thought. Our thoughts are, have a sort of arrogance to them that, like, without me, you won't accomplish anything. Your life will just Become zero. Like you'll, you'll forget everything that was important to you. You won't take action. There's, if there's no mental doership, then you'll just have no ability to make any decisions, etc. That's sort of the thoughts view of it often. And it's the fears that come up. And it's, it's important to redress those fears. And that's why I usually say that, that the view of thought, the, the, the typical view that we would, we would see if we look through the lens of thought would say something like that. But it turns out just to not be that way. In fact, it turns out that the conditions necessary to make a decision are immediately available in the environment at all times. And it starts to feel, doesn't just start to feel, it actually feels very much like the whole entire environment is making the decision. It doesn't feel like you're cast out of the decision-making process and you feel disempowered. It's nothing like that. It's, it's just a, it's an immersion in what's happening moment to moment. And from that good decisions seem to just arise. You know, sometimes maybe not the best decisions seem to arise, but that's not any different than uh, when we're mind identified. I can quote a guy. His name's Gary Weber, and he has a lot of videos online. He's a he's a scientist, and he did a lot of this uh, type of self inquiry work. He did he he worked really hard at this uh, several years ago, and he said at one point his thoughts completely stopped. Like his mind just became exquisitely calm, quiet. Everything was at peace, and he said it was there was kind of a almost a concern. You know, well what's going to happen when I go to work today? And he said. I went in and no one noticed. He said he had uh, more than 10 labs that he, that he ran, you know, a very large operating budget. He said, everything just went, just went as planned it, or it just went as it, as it always did. He said it was fine. And he was surprised actually, uh, that he had no sense of doership, the sense of the, the agent was just gone. And yet everything flowed perfectly well. And he said, I didn't have to pre-think anything. My mouth would open. I'd say something in a meeting and it was exactly what needed to be said. And his view of it was, that it was actually better than it was before. It was more clear, less clouded by thought and doubt and identity and trying to you know say the right thing. So people would, would accept it. And he, he just spoke and it, it came out just fine. So this is really the the wonder of wonders at the bottom of all this, that life really knows how to express itself just fine without us overthinking, you know, second guessing, imagining like it's just so wonderful to, to enjoy this present moment, just as it is knowing it will take care of everything and it continues to do so, but there's always going to be some doubt until you experience it. Of course, that's, that's sort of the way thoughts are and it's okay that those doubts are there. It doesn't mean it's not available to you with that said, I want to add one caveat to that two of the big concerns people have with this process are what, what will happen to my family? Will I like abandon my family or my children? Will I not love them anymore? And what will happen with my career? Will I suddenly lose interest in the career? And what I generally tell people is I haven't seen that with maybe rare exception. And the rare exception is someone who would tell you that they, they were in a career or maybe even a relationship that was not truly authentic and that going through this, this shift actually gave them the, the insight. To realize that they, they were really unhappy and, and they wanted to change careers or change, you know, so I've, I've seen that on occasion, but in that's probably a positive, whereas most people, they tend to stay in the relationships they're in, they tend to um, stay generally in the careers they're in and do just fine.
1: Well, it really is, and your description assuages a lot of the concern that people would have. And and if anything, the sense of non-doership that happens after you awaken, it actually makes you a, more effective at your job. When you talk about family, it makes you a better spouse or father or mother because you're in that present moment, and and you're on, you're almost in a flow state constantly, where every luminal moment, every passage of from one thing to the next, you're always grounded in that sense of present moment and and experiencing your true self in that state and just a, a remarkable thing, Angelo. And I love this term awakening, and I was thinking maybe we could wrap on this other term that's pretty common right now, and that's this term of resilience. And we hear this term resilience used time and time again in the healthcare industry when we talk about the workforce. And and a lot of of those in the profession are starting to equate it to like something that that corporate might say, which really it's a veiled word that might mean just suck it up and and do your job. But uh, in an awakened state, you do create your own resilience and that's through the equanimity and the present moment and instead of communicating from beliefs and concepts you communicate or even transmit from the very substance of unbound reality. And I know employers are out there trying to look at things like, you know, embracing meditation and self-inquiry and helping their workers maybe achieve some type of modicum of what you're talking about through an awakened state. I mean, I know a lot of employers are offering the Headspace meditation app or they're offering wellness retreats. Some of them are even hiring chief wellness officers, but it doesn't really come close to the non-dual awareness that we're talking about, but I wanted to just ask you, in terms of the the ailing healthcare workforce of a lot of our listeners out there, how do you think that health systems generally should be structuring wellness initiatives to support psychological resilience in the workforce? Is there something... And that can be done beyond the ineffective measures that we're currently seeing to create more equanimity and resilience. Obviously, to your point earlier, you know, you you have to be authentic in your approach to awakening, and you have to want it. It has to be very important. It can't be self-imposed. But I was just wondering if there's maybe something that the healthcare industry, in terms of trying to respond to the suffering that's in the workforce, what maybe there's a, some some common ground where maybe they could could help support those that are seeking you know, some type of awakened state or some type of uh, amelioration of their suffering. Could you speak a little bit about that? That would be awesome, wouldn't it?
0: <laughs> I think that would be awesome. First of all, I think, I think it's really encouraging though, that, that meditation is being taught. Like I work at a hospital that's affiliated with a Catholic system and then they have meditation access like online. And it's wonderful. Like, I think it's really, really cool. And it's very helpful as an entry point for people, meditation, mindfulness practices I think aside from awakening, but working in sort of group dynamics and group presence, uh, emotional um, intelligence, communication, things like that would also be really nice to add to it. Not sure where all the budget is and so forth, but as I said, it's it's, it's just not mainstream yet to talk about this this awakening process and so forth quite yet, but it seems like we're sort of moving there. And my instinct on it is anyone who's interested in, in this kind of thing, like if you're at work, look into it. Do you have a meditation program? Do you have a mindfulness practice program? Get your feet wet that way. Like start working with that, working with meditation apps. And often that sort of bridges this gap where Suddenly, you're really much more interested in this process we're talking about, and and it feels very personal and intimate to you. So I like all of those modalities as entry points. I think that I'm it's really good that they're here. I would just encourage more of it, and I I think I think it's awesome. It is really for a lot of people the sort of the entry point. Like I meditated for a few years before I really found self inquiry myself, and and really started digging in and. Got the sense that there's definitely something that I can shift here. There's something beyond this veil, like it took me a few years. So maybe that meditation was just necessary. I had to kind of calm my mind and body enough until I got to the point where I could see a little farther in and, and start to recognize this possibility. So I just know that these modalities, especially mindfulness, self-inquiry, if you really start digging in, you'll start feeling this, you'll start feeling into oh, wait a minute something doesn't quite add up with how I've been taking myself to be this separate entity from all this other you know, stuff around me. And I feel isolated. Like that discomfort actually can be an impetus as well. Like I've said before, and I, I say in my videos that the first stage of realization, really the very, very first stage of it is recognizing that I suffer, you know, just, it's just an acknowledgement. And sometimes we just have to meditate for a while until you start to recognize, yeah, When I meditate, I feel some equanimity. I feel some peace, but I'm also starting to feel some emotions come to the surface. I'm starting to recognize that I want something even more authentic in my life. I want to really find a way to dig in deeper. I think those are all great ways to start. And I I would encourage anyone to to get involved in, in, in any of those modalities if they're offered.
1: Well, I, I think that's a great perspective, Angelo, and I, I appreciate you bringing up this uh, application of self-inquiry in- that, like yourself, before you were like an awakening, I too, I've been meditating for years, and it wasn't until the retreat that we recently had with six days of you know silent meditation where I, I really practiced this technique of uh, self-inquiry, and, and, and I really reached a major tipping point where I went beyond just the quiescent state of the mind and, and then really was able to interact with the world around me through this loving presence and, you know, create this universal awareness of being that you described earlier. So I, I think that's definitely something that might be a next step for those that are starting to to get into meditation and other practices of mindfulness. But I commend you for what you're doing to help people overcome this illusion of separation and end their suffering. It's been a great pleasure to spend time with you today on the podcast. Uh, you know, I've really enjoyed getting to know you over the last few weeks. And I just wanted to ask you, I guess, just in terms of some parting thoughts and recommendations for those that listen to the podcast and want to learn more about your work and awakening, you know, how can they find out more and where would you point them to?
0: Probably the most common reference I I give people is The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. It's just so well-written. It's very accessible. It's easy to digest, but he's really good at pointing something deeper. Like he, he can really give you that taste, that sense of, Whoa, okay. Now I see what they mean. There's something sort of beyond this, this way I usually experience my life. I like that book a lot. My book is called awake. It's your turn. That's on Amazon. It's a bit more of an instruction manual. It's more directed. If you're ready to like really jump in. I recommend that there are many videos online actually now by very good teachers and they have different styles. Eckhart Tolle has a lot of videos. I have videos online. My YouTube channel is um, simply always awake. There's a a teacher named Adya Shanti. He's got plenty of videos on YouTube. Extremely clear, very compassionate, human, very good at pointing to this, these types of things. And sometimes just watching those videos will give you some of this insight and it kind of shows you where to look. You know, you may have been listening to this going well what do you mean like dig into consciousness and self-inquiry? But sometimes you, you just listen to these videos or you read the book and you, you just sit with it for a while and something just clicks and you just know where to look. You're like, oh, that, that's been here the whole time. Let me look closer. Yeah. Let me look deeper. Just expose yourself to, to this stuff. That's really the key. If you're serious and about this and you're like, yes, I've been listening to this podcast for over an hour and this is what I'm interested in. This is what I want to do which many people who were at that retreat with us told me that they they said, yeah, listening to you was the first time I really recognized that this is an important part of my life I wanna address. And if if you're feeling that or if you're experiencing that, we have good news and that is uh, this is definitely possible just expose yourself to teachers, the books. You don't need to join an ashram. You don't need to quit your job, but expose yourself to good pointing until you start to get that taste, that feeling of, Oh, okay. I see that is something opening to something more vast, deeper, more primal in a sense. Once you have that taste, it's, you start to know where to orient a little more. And then sometimes a technique can be helpful, a certain self-inquiry technique and so forth, which there's plenty of videos and my book describes that as well. So Those are some of the resources I could list a whole bunch, but I think those get you started. You may find some other teachers that you just like watching and relate to.
1: Dr. Angelo Delulo, thanks for joining us this week in the Race to Value. Angelo, it was so awesome to be with you. I really appreciate your time and thanks for sharing this important perspective on awakening. I think our listeners, those that are interested genuinely in this topic are going to benefit from it.
0: I love it, man. Thanks so much, Eric. Anyone listening, I, I wish you happiness and fruition and uh, enjoyment and peace in your life.